0: This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair, number 86, December the 12th, 1984. The noise you hear in the background is the rain. Now, from uh, Chuck Wagner's perspective, since he's recording this, that noise is uh, undesirable. But, of course, I grew up on a farm, and uh, to me... The sound of rain is a blessed sound, because it means life, it means growth, it means food. So, uh, relax and enjoy it together with me. Well, very briefly, I'd like to begin by referring to another book by the historian of the Confederacy, James Lee McDonough, Chattanooga, A Death Grip on the Confederacy. This book was published by the University of Tennessee Press in Knoxville, Tennessee, in 1984, this year. Now, it's a rather uh, technical study of one of the key battles in the defeat of the South. And one of the things that comes through in this book, as in so many others, is the fact that the Southern generals with the notable exception of Lee and Jackson, spent a good deal of their time feuding with each other. They expounded a great deal of energy, fighting one another, so that at Chattanooga, which was essential to the life of the Confederacy, the generals were busy writing letters to Jefferson Davis and getting his intervention on their side. As a result... The Confederacy, in that battle, was able to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. Now, I think this book is the least interesting of McDonough's studies on uh, Confederate battles, his study of Shiloh and uh, his study of the Battle of Franklin and other such works because it is largely a rather technical analysis of the battle. I'm sorry to say, too, that he missed a superb chance to do some uh, storytelling, because one of the Union generals who was important in the battle and whom he just mentions in passing in two sentences was, would you believe it, General Jefferson C. Davis. Now, whether General uh, Jefferson Davis of the Union Army was a relative of the president of the Confederacy, I don't know. They both fought in the uh, Army together in Mexico. Jefferson Davis of the North has a very interesting history, and a chapter on him would be most interesting. Jefferson Davis and another Union general, uh, Nelson, Bull Nelson as he was known, were two of the most promising younger generals in the Northern Army. Both were believed to have a tremendous future. And it might well have been, had uh, Bull Davis lived, he or Jefferson C. Davis might have commanded the uh, Union forces rather than Grant or Sherman. But uh, trouble developed. Bull Davis, uh, uh, excuse me, Bull Nelson, who was a man of six feet, four, and three hundred pounds of muscle, was a man of volatile disposition, very genial and friendly, until he was crossed. And then he was um, a raging uh, fire who ripped apart all his junior officers verbally, dressed them down and humiliated them in public, Well, when he did that to Jefferson C. Davis, Davis demanded a retraction, and Nelson refused to give it. Davis challenged Nelson to a duel, and Bull Nelson laughed in his face and walked away. Whereupon, shortly thereafter... Davis confronted Nelson again and shot him without warning, killed him on the spot. Nothing was done to Jefferson Davis because uh, of the fact that it was believed that they had lost one of their outstanding generals and it would be uh, a tragedy if they lost both because, of course, he should have been court-martialed and shot. It was cold-blooded murder. It was particularly notable that uh, nothing was done because Bull Nelson's family was close to Lincoln personally. His brother, I believe, was Lincoln's very close friend and his ambassador to Chile. However, although nothing was done to Jefferson C. Davis, He was never given an independent command. He felt very bitter about this to the end of the war. He was very clearly an able man. But both Nelson and Davis had a kind of intemperate disposition, which makes it uh, perhaps providentially best that they never were given a totally independent command. Very interesting sidelight on the war, but think of what would have happened if Davis had not destroyed his own career with murder and had risen to a commanding position, and you would have had Jefferson C. Davis of the North waging war against the Southern forces with the commander-in-chief in the South being Jefferson Davis as president. An interesting sidelight on history. Now on to another book by a very uh, fine scholar, Jonathan Sumption, S-U-M-P-T-I-O-N, Pilgrimage, An Image of Medieval History, uh, published by Roman and Littlefield in uh, 1975. This book on pilgrimage, an image of medieval religion, is particularly interesting as uh, a a choice insight into medieval faith. Sumption points out how uh, pilgrimages developed, as well as the cult of relics. Just as you and I today, if we meet a very important man and he gives us a signed photograph, we'll treasure it. Or if we have a loved one who dies, we treasure the mementos of their life because their influence on us was one we love and respect. So too, from the earliest days of the church, when a great man of the faith was martyred. Any mementos of his life, any of his personal possessions, were treasured, and there would be pilgrimages to his tomb. Now, as this developed over the centuries, all kinds of uh, accretions were added to this veneration of great saints. It began to be believed that there were occult powers in the relics. It began to be maintained that there was a merit in visiting the uh, places, the tombs, or where the relics were. And little by little, a ritual framework of life developed for the faith. Now, we should remember that while there were some churchmen who very definitely uh, approved of this, by and large the church did oppose this kind of thing. But it developed on a popular level, and very often men who died would be venerated by the people over the opposition of the church. It was believed that pilgrimages provided a kind of entrance to heaven and were comparable to that. There were also political saints, and uh, the whole movement tended to get out of hand. As a result, there were no churchmen lacking to oppose it, but a large population of very simple believers with relics of paganism in their makeup made it virtually impossible to uh, do anything with the cult. Now, the interesting thing is that in the late Middle Ages, a popular pietism developed. I'll deal more with that in a little while. But this uh, popular pietism began to forsake the pilgrimages for an inward pilgrimage. Thus, going to Canterbury or going to Santiago or to Rome was replaced by a kind of a spiritual pilgrimage in the inner life. And so devotional handbooks became popular in the 15th century, which explained to their readers how to follow each stage of an imaginary pilgrimage in their own home and gain the same benefits. The devotional manuals, therefore, created what we know today is pietism. The emphasis not on the outward manifestation of an inward faith, but a purely inward result, an endless pilgrimage, an endless uh, self-exploitation and emotionalism. As a result, the whole of the medieval uh, pietism developed into something that neglected works and instead of saying faith without works is dead they tended to stress the inner experience the experiential thing rather than the doctrinal and the practical now I'm going to go into that because this is an aspect of medieval faith which the Church could not contend with and which finally gained a kind of acceptance and which Protestantism then adopted. One of the interesting areas of medieval thought is the... uh, uh, Homily, uh, the liturgical sermons by some of the Cistercian fathers, in particular, Gueric of Aini, Gueric, G U E R R I C, a particularly uh, powerful preacher. In fact, uh, you could take some of his sermons and read them in any church today, Protestant or Catholic, and they would be regarded as powerful and great preaching. Perhaps the way to tell you that is to read uh, one or two passages. For example, in his Sermon 1, the first sermon for Advent, uh, Guerrick speaks of the hope of man in the Saviour, the hope that awaited him before his birth as people looked to his birth and as men now look to him for deliverance, for blessing and for guidance. And to quote, we are waiting for the Savior. Such waiting is truly a joy to the righteous who are waiting for the hope of blessedness, the glorious coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What am I waiting for, a righteous man ask may ask but the Lord? I know, he says, turning toward him, that he will not disappoint me after such a wait as mine. Already my being is with you, for our nature taken from amongst us and offered on our behalf is glorified with you. This gives us hope, for all flesh will come to you, the members following their head, so that the holocaust may be complete. But a man can wait for the Lord the more trustfully if his conscience is so at rest as to let him say, Every smallest possession of mine, Lord, is entirely yours. For I have treasured up in heaven all my powers, either by giving them to you or by renouncing them for you. At your feet I have laid down all that is mine knowing you will be able not just to keep it safe, but to restore it to me multiplied a hundredfold and to add to it eternal life. How blessed are you, poor in spirit, who in accordance with the advice of the wonderful Counselor lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, lest your hearts become corrupt by remaining on earth with your treasure. For he says, where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Let your hearts go then. Let them go after their treasures. Let your attention be fixed on high and your expectancy hang upon the Lord, so that you can justly say with the Apostle, our abiding place is in heaven, from where we are expecting the Savior to come. O oh, hope of all peoples, everyone who waits for you shall not be disappointed, Unquote. Now, this is very beautiful and very good. We should remember, by the way, that uh, these Cistercian monks chanted the entire Psalter, the Book of Psalms, all 150 psalms every week. So they were saturated with Scripture. Then, perhaps, this passage also to read would be worthwhile, and I quote, Humility is the greatest of all virtues, although it does not know itself to be a virtue. It is the root and seedbed, the tinder and incentive, it is the summit and peak, the custody and discipline of almost all the virtues. From it they begin, through it they make progress, in it they are perfected, by it they are preserved. It is humility that makes all the virtues what they are. And if any one of them be lacking or less perfect, It is humility that compensates for the loss, since it profits by the other's absence. Well, both volumes of uh, Gueric's liturgical sermons are uh, beautiful. Uh, His sermon, for example, on Let This Mind Be In You, which was in Christ, uh, is magnificent. He does, by the way, have uh, some excellent things to say on the love of God. However, what had happened to the monastic movement was that it was becoming more and more inward-oriented. Thus, Gueric says, charitable activities are secondary to contemplation. Now, earlier there had been a balance between meditation and work, between what went on in one's cell and what one did to minister in Christ's name to all peoples. And the monastery had been a center for a variety of activities. It had been a place of refuge for people. It had been a hotel for travelers who had no place to stay it had fed the people in the neighborhood, it had been a hospital, and much, much more. Now, contemplation was gaining the upper hand. Moreover, Quarick also says that the literal sense of Scripture is secondary. So that while he was a powerful preacher, dealing with the literal sense, he began to counsel people to develop their uh, study of an allegorical, a spiritualized sense of Scripture. Now this kind of thing began to proliferate. For example, Caroline Walker Bynum, B as in boy, Y-N-U-M, in a book, Uh, published by the University of California Press in 1982 and uh, in paperback in 1984. The title is Jesus as Mother, Studies in the Spirituality of the High Middle Ages. The title may seem startling, but uh, this was typical of the... uh, new uh, emphasis on spirituality. And as Bynum says, and I quote, The god of early medieval writing and art is a judge and king to whom propitiation is offered by the hordes of monks presenting correct and beautiful prayers before countless altars. Christ is a prince, reigning from the throne of the cross after defeating humankind's In contrast, he says, then uh, there was an effective and sentimentalized attitude towards the gospel story, and, quoting again from Bynum, the fundamental religious drama is now located within the self, unquote. So that now you had a very, very heavy emphasis in the new uh, pietism on emotions, on inner experience. And you had women preaching and bestowing blessings, something that has arisen again and again in the history of biblical faith. And by the way, let me uh, digress there. Uh, there are women rabbis now, which is nothing new uh, or altogether new, because in the time of our Lord, the synagogue had, of course, gone sadly astray, and the temple worship also. And uh, there was a great deal of emphasis on women, and Jewish women were synagogue leaders, uh, this was brought out in a uh, somewhat technical and detailed study, but a very important bit of work, by Bernadette J. Bruton, B as in boy, R-O-O-T-E-N, uh, Inscriptional Evidence for Women as Leaders in the Ancient Synagogue, which uh, was published in the Society of Biblical Literature, 1981 seminar papers by and the Scholar's Press uh, published it. Well, to get back to Bynum's work, this kind of thing has recurred again and again. When pietism arises, it stresses the emotional experience of the faith rather than doctrine and faithfulness Rather than believing and obeying, manifesting your faith in the world at large. Our Lord said, By their fruits shall ye know them. But pietism says, The fruits of faith are devotional exercises. Now, when this happens, feminism arises, because it creates a sentimental a version of the faith which has more and more men dropping out of it, so that in the late Middle Ages, this kind of thing began to predominate, and the influence of women in the church began to be very, very great. So uh, we see on all sides uh, a new kind of emphasis within the medieval church. The clergy had their power exalted by the women. The uh, emphasis increasingly became effeminate. It produced a new sense, as Vinham said, of God as father, mother, lover, friend. And this kind of thing led to the emphasis on Jesus as mother and the abbot as mother it led to the feminization of religious language in a most emphatic sense. Now, one of the things that uh, both Luther and uh, Calvin represented, and Bynum recognizes, as does Osment and other scholars, was a reaction against this type of emotional and effeminate piety. God was spoken of as a she by some of the uh, thinkers of the day. And it did not make any difference that some of the Catholic theologians spoke out against this. This was the popular piety. Now, it went so far that emotional experience was given a power over God. And it reached the point where if you partook of communion, especially with this type of emotional experience, it was held, and I quote, in the Eucharist, God gives to the soul power over himself. As Bynum uh, points out, there was no sense in these pietists of a war between good and evil. The whole of the world was now internalized, and the idea that there was good and evil waging war on the world was replaced with a soul's pilgrimage a pilgrimage to ever-higher and higher spirituality. As a consequence of this development, the whole of medieval theology was eroded. At the same time, you had the uh, state increasingly controlling the Vatican. It led to a popular pietism... which only promoted this type of thinking, and then the Reformation. However, this type of pietism then began to infiltrate the Church again after the uh, century or two of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, so that by the late 17th century, pietism in Catholic and Protestant circles had again taken over the church, again begun to dominate the experiences of people, and the church again began to be irrelevant because the essence of faith was to forget the world, to be wrapped up in your own inner being. This type of thing is all too common today. Incidentally, because we reviewed... Mr. Canfield's very careful, explicit, and well documented book on Schofield. We had people write in and uh, ask to be dropped off our mailing list, which we were happy to do. Uh, none of the hosts had ever contributed a penny anyway. <laughs> well, now on to another book. Thomas S. Burns, A History of the Ostrogoths, published by the Indiana University Press in Bloomington in 1984. This book is um, of importance primarily to historians, but uh, one thing uh, I thought I'd pass on, because it rather amused me, it has to do with Theodoric, the Ostrogoth king, in uh, North Italy when they established a realm there. Theodoric was popularly praised, and I'm quoting, and remembered for his Edicta establishing justice for the Goths. The legend of his Solomon esque justice and impatience for legal obstruction and delay was equally endearing to the Romans. One story even spread to the eastern Mediterranean. A Roman matron, Juvenalia, had grown old awaiting a decision on a lawsuit against one firmus, a patrician. Utterly exasperated, after thirty years, she appealed to Theodoric to hasten the litigation. He issued an ultimatum giving the lawyers only two days more, they were now suitably inspired, and a settlement issued forthwith. A short while later, Juvenalia came to thank the king, who promptly summoned the lawyers. Why could you do in two days what was impossible in thirty years, he demanded? And he had them executed. <laughs> I told a few people about that recently, and they wished Theodoric were alive and well in Washington, D.C. I've known cases to last that long in this country. As as a matter of fact, one of the most famous uh, cases with regard to wills went into court when I was a, a child, and it was settled sometime in the past decade. So it was in the courts for a long time, longer than uh, Juvenalia's case. Now to another work, an excellent little work, which uh, I hope you'll get, because I think it's an exceptionally important book written by a friend who is on our mailing list, H. Rondell Rumberg, R-U-M, B as in Boy U-R-G, entitled Baptists and the State. And it can be uh, had for 4.95 from H. Rondell Rumberg, 106 Pennsylvania Avenue, Lynchburg, Virginia, 24504. It studies the uh, Baptist position here in the United States. And to quote from the premise of a preface, Thomas R. McKibben, speaking of early Baptists, related, whenever their understanding of the word of God contradicted the word of the civil magistrate, they chose the word of God. That is to say, if God was the father of this denomination, the Bible was the cradle and massive civil disobedience was the nursing mother, unquote. Very few people are aware of the fact that uh, no group in our country has uh, longer history of massive civil disobedience than the Baptists. They fought against any interference into the life of the Church by the state. And we owe a great debt to them. The sad fact is, as uh, Rumberg points out, and let me quote All Baptist ministers sided with the colonies, with the exception of one minister, and fought with conviction for the colonial cause. The lone exception was Morgan Edwards. He was an educator, preacher, and historian. Edwards was middle-aged when he emigrated to America in 1761 and was constantly on the move after his arrival. He traveled from New Hampshire to Georgia compiling Baptist data for a history that was never printed, but it became the basis of histories written by others. Constant travel, perhaps, precluded his understanding of the colonial cause, and he had a son in the Tory army. However, during the conflict with England... His brethren sought to show him a more excellent way. After the war for independence, Edwards was as loyal to his new country as at one time he had been against her. End of quote. Uh, Today, as Ron Romberg points out, too many Baptists believe that There should be a separation of religion and the state and have taken a position that is totally against the historic Baptist position. They've also adopted a no-Creed position, again, very alien to Baptist history. The modern cry, less creed and more liberty, quoting again, is a degeneration from the vertebrate to the jellyfish, and means less unity and less morality, and it means more heresy. It only exposes and corrects. Shut off the creed and the Christian world would fill up with heresy unsuspected and uncorrected, but nonetheless deadly. End of quote. Uh, Ron Rumberg rightly believes, quoting again, the God of eternity who created time rightly controls time, unquote. And therefore, Christianity must have something to say about the state. And Christ is the Lord of the state as well as of the church. Again, quoting from Ron Rumberg, Injustice always results when men govern or are governed by laws made by man, All the great Baptists are in this book, John L. Dagg, a particularly marvelous man, as well as Bacchus, perhaps the real father of the Baptists. I've uh, referred to John L. Dagg before, and uh, I have a great fondness for him. His uh, sixth-generation granddaughter, Beth Sutton, is one of you. And uh, I'll tell the story again that I told, oh, a couple of years ago. When Beth Sutton came to visit us here at Vallecito, when she walked in she spotted John L. Dagg's book. It had just been sent to me the day before by Lloyd Sprinkle, who had reprinted it. It had been out of print for a long time, the collected works of John L. Dagg. Beth was delighted to see it. she did not know it was back in print. And then she told me that she was a descendant of John L. Dagg. Besides being a great leader in the church and a theologian, John L. Dagg prayed daily that all his children and his children's children to the end of time would be in the faith. And Beth told me that she knew all the relatives, six generations, mind you, now, so they're quite numerous, and everyone is in the faith. Some strayed for a time, but they've all come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, this is a great book, a delight to read, and you must uh, by all means order it, read it, and get others to read it as well. Uh, Let me just read a a couple of sentences more. Uh, This from the conclusion. Christians have a responsibility under God to seek the reconstruction of true Christian liberty without any admixture of statism or humanism. Also, Christians must make concerted effort to gain political officers and assert the principles of God's law relating to civil government. God's law is king and not the vote of a majority of humans in a particular society. Remember that men who do not bow to God will be bound by man. Also, it is better to obey God rather than man. Unquote. One thing more, because I hate to leave this book, it's such a joy. Uh, this was a series of lessons that Ron taught to his congregation, six chapters. I think it would be excellent if uh, some of you got it and used it as a study manual in your particular group. I'll give you the name again. The price is 4 a copy. Order it from H. Rondell, R-O-N-D-E-L, Rumberg R-U-M-B-U-R-G, 106 Pennsylvania, Avenue, Lynchburg, Virginia, 24502. It was published by the Baptist Society for Biblical Studies. Well, now on to another uh, very important book that I referred to in a position paper not too long ago. This book, is Christ Unmasked, the Meaning of the Life of Jesus in German Politics by Marilyn Chapin Massey, M as in Mary, A-S-S-E-Y, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 1983. Uh, The book deals with the work of uh, David Friedrich Strauss, The Life of Jesus, which is a landmark in the history of Christian theology because it was the work which fathered modernism. It brought together in one volume a great many strands of thinking, so there was nothing original, but it created a sensation in putting all these things together, namely denying the entire orthodox doctrine with regard to Jesus Christ, seeing him as a mere man only, rendering the whole of uh, biblical faith null and void, or so he thought. However, as Massey points out, this book, which influenced Catholics and Protestants to a very great degree and led to the modernist movement, had also an important political and social history throughout the world. Because basic to uh, this book, uh, the life of Jesus, are its political implications. The uh, whole point of his work was to neutralize the power of religion, to reduce churches to a branch of the government, as they already were in many countries, and to create, in effect, a new incarnation and this is the heart of his influence. If Jesus Christ was not God incarnate, where is the incarnation? How does the divinity, which, as Hegelian, Strauss, and others saw inherent in all of the natural world, come to focus in history? Certainly not in Christ they held. It can come to focus in two places, and Strauss provided the answer in the successive editions of his book. It can come to focus in the emperor and the state, or the incarnation is the human species, so that mankind as a whole is going to become God incarnate, or it can be a fusion of these two ideas, as later developments made it, so that the state as God walking on earth was now an idea that was introduced into Christian theology. Your liberation theology is an offshoot of this. A great deal, for example, that the Jesuit order is promulgating is a child of Hegelianism and Strauss, A great deal that the National and World Council promulgates is the same thing. Their new God is the state or humanity, depending upon which variation you take. The interesting thing is that uh, this new faith began to create its own martyrs. And Massey deals with the 1834 suicide of a young woman, Charlotte Steiglitz, who created deliberately a sacrificial suicide. Uh, I quote, Her husband was a struggling, unsuccessful poet, and she, convinced of his talent, sought to arouse his genius by providing him with the soul-wrenching emotions that she believed inspired creative acts. Her husband remained mediocre in his poetry, but Charlotte became an instant legend, inspiring more talented writers. Gutzkoff wrote, whoever should possess the genius of gaiety and could endure the fact that people would speak of imitation could, in telling the story of Charlotte, write an immortal companion piece to Werther and so on and on. Now, uh, this is a more romantic type of human uh, sacrificial suicide, but in the political sphere we have seen people urged to this kind of thing. Youth doing hopeless things on the basis that here is an atoning sacrifice, let's lay down our lives in riots, in terrorism, in this and that, and create, at the price of our lives, an atoning sacrifice. It has been a most evil and diabolical influence. Very important work. More than once I have referred you to the works of Howard Phillips and uh, the Conservative Caucus. The uh, Conservative Manifesto, which comes out uh, monthly, is an exceptionally uh, able analysis and a source of news. It runs some 45 or 50 pages per issue. It is available from Policy Analysis Incorporated, Nine five two O Bent Creek Lane, Vienna, Virginia two two one eight O comes out monthly, and uh, you can get a three months trial subscription for twenty five dollars. The subscription is for a year is two hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, you will find here information and reports on statements that you will get nowhere else. For example, on the first page of the November 1984 issue, it speaks of Congressman Jack Kemp wooing black liberals, praising the New Deal and the Great Society, and uh, saying, Ladies and gentlemen, we can't allow fighting poverty to become passe." the Civil Rights Revolution opened doors that had been closed by law. But as Martin Luther King, Jr. reminded us, it will not be complete until America's doors of economic opportunity are fully opened and our minorities are integrated into the mainstream of the American economy. Now that sounds good, but how do you do it? By increasing freedom or by increasing controls? Kemp goes on to say, Uh, The American people are compassionate. They aren't against helping people. They aren't against welfare. It is true, as some say, that the government is best which governs least. But it is equally true that the government is best which does most for the people. Leadership requires understanding the proper role of government." In other words... Kemp is going the same route as Reagan, beginning in one camp and moving steadily to another. Then there is an excellent uh, section. It's all good. I wish I could read it all to you, but, of course, it would take a few hours. Uh, Sixty-Year Interest-Free Loans for Red China. So, Red China is getting loans from us, interest-free, for 60 years. And what are you paying for your loans when you go to the bank? And why are the banks beginning to foreclose on the farmers, who are not uh, anything but an asset to our country, and they're suffering now and are being foreclosed on when they've had a bad year, when a good year can put them back in the saddle again. Then an important section on is Chester Rocker a Soviet agent. Is Ronald Reagan's Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs a Soviet agent? I hope not, but if he is, he would be implementing precisely the policies which the Reagan administration has followed in Africa since its inauguration on January 20, 1981. A. Massive aid to the Marxist Leninist dictatorship of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. B. Massive aid to the Moscow puppet government in Luanda, Angola. C. Pressure on South Africa to terminate military assistance to the anti communist UNITA forces in Angola. D. Pressure on South Africa to discontinue support for the anti-communist Mozambican national resistance in Mozambique, e. Economic aid to the Marxist-Leninist dictatorship in Mozambique, and f. Pressure on South Africa to hold UN-supervised elections in Southwest Africa, which would likely lead to a one-party communist dictatorship under the direction of the terrorist group SWAPO. Now, it is interesting, by the way, that uh, the South African bishop, a far out leftist who won the Nobel Prize, was received in the White House. It was only about a month ago that the same bishop uh, made statements about uh, Reagan that made uh, Pravda look moderate. But he was received. It seems the best way for anyone to get along with Washington is to kick the U.S. and our leaders in the teeth. Then they fall all over themselves in trying to please them. Well, our time is getting short. There are a couple of other things I want to deal with hurriedly. This from the... uh, Washington Monthly for December 1984, I think, is of interest, and I quote, Donald Couture was convicted of murder by a Connecticut jury. The evidence showed that during a robbery, he had killed three men by shooting them in the back. The state Supreme Court said the evidence against Couture was overwhelming, yet it overturned his conviction. Why? Because during the trial, the prosecutor had called Couture a rat, a murderous fiend, and a merciless killer. Here is another case where questionable behavior by a law enforcement official, in this case very mildly questionable behavior, is used by a court to revoke conviction of a clearly guilty criminal. When guilt is clear, why don't we rebuke or penalize the offending official but keep the criminal in jail where he belongs? Let me say I was in one trial once uh, where in a case involving a, a gang of criminals, really, an organized gang, each to be severally on trial. The arresting police officer was treated uh, with uh, most incredible insolence, contempt, and abuse. And I wondered at the patience of the man that... Uh, He didn't pull out his gun and use it then and there. He was insulted so thoroughly. And I uh, thoroughly regret the cases where police officers uh, use undue brutality when they are dealing with peoples, but I can see how they could have a short fuse after the kind of treatment they do receive in court. Now on to another thing along the same lines. This is from... Uh, The California Farmer for October 20, 1984. Uh, Jack Pickett's editorial on the ultra-liberal court. California's ultra-liberal Supreme Court ruled that Mendocino County had the power to go against the state and federal government in choosing which insecticides could be legally used. The ruling made potheads happy and helped protect one of their big cash crops. Too bad we can't harvest that crop, refine enough for medical purposes in this country, and sell the rest to countries like Russia and Cuba with the hope that it would mellow them down a bit. California agriculture has had a tough batting practice with our own Supreme Court. While murder has not been one of our individual problems, the action of the Supreme Court gives you some idea of the fuzzy liberal thinking we have to deal with. As Assemblyman Don Rogers points out, all death penalty sentences are appealed automatically to the Supreme Court. Of the 22 death penalty cases thus far decided by the Supreme Court, 19 have been reversed. A few examples. A double murderer's death penalty was set aside. The Supreme Court's reason It held that since the jury was selected from a list of registered voters, it did not represent a fair cross-section of the community. In 1972, the state Supreme Court struck down the death penalty as cruel and unusual punishment, which is forbidden by the Constitution. As a result, 111 convicted killers were freed from death row and became eligible for parole. The people moved quickly, and later that same year uh, uh, approved an initiative To amend the state constitution to restore the death penalty. In 1976, the state Supreme Court again struck down the death penalty, and this time 68 more killers became eligible for parole. Again the legislature adopted a bill restoring the death penalty, but only after overriding Governor Brown's veto. That was six years ago, and still not one death row murderer. Has been executed. We have before us a list of the reasons the court turned loose these murderers, and believe me, it is a compendium of trivia. Unquote. Well, as Jack Pickett goes on to say, there is a revulsion in the land, and it is going to change. The one question is are you helping make that change possible? This country will be changed. Well, our time is up now. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back in two weeks, and if John is not away again, he's filming a team right now, uh, he and Otto and I may do uh, a very important segment on a problem in our society today. Thank you, and God bless you.